Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Leonard Barkin, who was the class of 1943 university professor at Princeton, where he teaches in the Department of Comparative Literature. He's here to talk about his new book, Berlin for Jews, a 21st century companion published in 2016 by the University of Chicago Press. Leonard, thanks very much for joining us on New Books in Jewish Studies. It's my great pleasure, Max. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. So first off, this is a very interesting book. Um, I'm not sure I've uh, read anything else um, quite like it. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book? Certainly. Um, I have uh, my first... Uh, extended time in Berlin was as a fellow of the American Academy in Berlin uh, back in 2009-10. And I came to Berlin, I had come to Berlin previously and fallen almost instantly in love with the city. As I spent more time there, I began to realize that one of the things that led to this passionate and sudden love affair was that the place felt profoundly Jewish. I don't know. I didn't know at first what that meant to me, but I knew I felt it in my bones. And I've since ascertained that lots of other people, uh, secular Jews like myself, often uh, from the States, um, have had the same impression, maybe from different sources. So I began to think about how that could be. Uh, the obvious uh, the obvious ironies of saying of saying that. And those ironies started to be uh, themselves very attractive. Mm. Uh, I loved the fact that this was all built on a kind of absurd contradiction, uh, but it nevertheless it was there. And I suppose the real moment was that early on in that year at the American Academy, which I should say is located on the Wannsee, just to give you another uh, frisson about mm. um, about this subject, since the Wannsee Conference Center which is directly across the lake from the American Academy, um, was the place where the final solution was essentially uh, completed as a project. Um, and in fact, the American Academy is in a grand house that belonged to uh, a wealthy Jewish family uh, in sight of the Wannsee Conference Center. So those ironies pile up anyway. But early in that first time, uh, I went with my partner, who's a photographer, uh, to the uh, Schönhauser Allee Jewish Cemetery, which is not often visited. It's not the very oldest cemetery, which people go to uh, in Mitte, nor is it the very largest cemetery, Weissensee. Um, but this, the Schönhauser Allee Cemetery was a kind of magical oasis of calm uh, in the middle of the city. And it's remarkably undisturbed. Uh, everyone always asks me when I talk about it, how come it's undisturbed? And we really don't know exactly. There are some signs of 
uh, bombing and so on, but very little sense that it was ever desecrated. And it's a beautiful space, but it also was a space where just by reading the tombstones and walking, it's about 12 acres of ground. In other words, not tiny, but not enormously large. Um, just by reading the tombstones uh, and treating them as kind of note cards of data, you could get a sense of what it meant uh, to have a Jewish, a real Jewish presence in Berlin. This is a cemetery that was inaugurated in 1827 and kept being used, uh, eventually uh, sort of shutting down mostly by the beginning of the 20th century or even a little earlier. But so you see 19th century Berlin jewelry there. And it was an extraordinary collection of people. So that was the beginning of saying this was a real civilization and it had a real life as well as a death. So that's where the book began. Mm. Great. So, yeah, your book looks centrally at two places and three people um, to illustrate Berlin's Jewish history and legacy. Um, and as you said, you start with the, the cemetery, um, the Jewish cemetery. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and, and why you chose that to, to start your book? Certainly. Um, partly, I chose it to start the book because it was the beginning of my own uh, discovery of Berlin. But it also was, I wanted quite deliberately to give readers a set. First of all, the book is partly touristical. That is to say, I call it a companion because though it's not a guidebook, it's the kind of book that one might take, uh, read on, a, you know, on the way to Berlin or carry with one. Um, so I wanted these places to be real places where I would explain to the reader what it was like to be there and what you couldn't see and why you might want to go. Mm. Um, uh, the, uh, the purpose, the sort of literary purpose of starting with Schönhauser besides my own, um, you know, coup de foudre with it, my falling in love, um, is that it was a perfect occasion to give a kind of census of who Berlin Jews were. Mm. Um, and that, and so I, I walk the reader through the cemetery and just quickly get a sense. And I had to do a lot of research. These are uh, by no means famous people or a very, very small number are famous people <clears throat> like uh, the great composer Giacomo Meyer is buried there. Uh, uh, Max Liebermann is buried there. Uh, uh, Gelsen Bleichröder is buried there. But outside of a certain kind of expert group, even those three might not be well-known. And that was fine by me. Um, I wanted to look and see who is this guy. And I learned that he was, <clears throat> was one of the first people to do kidney surgery. Um, uh, <clears throat> who is this woman? Well, she had, <clears throat> was an early feminist who translated J.S. Mill's uh, essay on women into German and so on. So it, I moved very quickly for some readers, I think too quickly through I don't know what the number is, 30 or 40 people mm. in a kind of daisy chain of associations. Uh, so we could say, this is Berlin Jewry. Uh, they're not all rabbis. They're not all um, plutocrats. Uh, they're not all famous people. Uh, but they were all richly inserted into the life of the city. So that's, and I try to, to allow the reader to get that feeling. But I also, because... In a sense, um, 
for me personally, I spend, I'm in a department of comparative literature, but I have done a lot of my work as art history. Um, uh, I'm very interested in monuments and I mm. wrote a big book about the uh, ruins of Rome, uh, the loss of uh, ancient sculpture in Rome. So for me, the cemetery is actually most passionately exciting because of the way it looks and the kinds of, of monuments that are there. Um, what combination of different styles and different levels of, of humility or pretension they have. So this is the walkthrough of that, in that opening, uh, well, first of these, of these two place chapters. The walkthrough is who are these people and how do they want to represent themselves monumentally or unmonumentally uh, in the city. That's great. So in the second chapter, you take us to uh, the Bavarian Quarter, um, which, as you say, it was, there was an integrated housing project um, though it was known as a very Jewish area. Um, t- tell us about, about this place. Well, <clears throat> you know, I, I chose these places uh, because I, was, I loved them. But it also occurred to me as I stepped back from that choice that I was choosing one, one location that was uh, fundamentally from the 19th century. That's the Shenhazale Cemetery. Mm. And the other fundamentally from the 20th century, uh, which is the Bavarian Quarter that was inaugurated in 1900. And that one place was in the east of the city, that is the cemetery, and the other in the west, the Bavarian Quarter. And I should say that east and west Berlin were always, that was always a significant distinction well before the division of the city. And that, of course, I also was choosing one place where people lived and the other place where they were laid to rest. So there's a kind of grand, if perhaps originally accidental, there's a kind of grand symmetry to these two places. The Bavarian Quarter uh, was understood, as I say, inaugurated around 1900, understood it was a, a new neighborhood uh, in what had been roughly a kind of suburban area. In, in Schoenberg. So we're in uh, uh, the, we- the central west part of the city uh, and on the southern side of that, just to locate it. Um, and it was, um, it was uh, created, it, was, it came to be understood, it was called the Jewish Switzerland, because it was understood as a Jewish neighborhood. The truth of the matter is that possibly as many as 10 or 12% of the inhabitants were Jewish. But of course, that made it a uh, something like double the proportion in uh, the rest of Berlin mm. and of course a vastly higher proportion uh, than in Germany where the Jewish population was less than 1%. Um, uh, so the, uh, it, it came to be known that way in any event and as a kind of intellectual and artist uh, neighborhood. Um, but it was also perhaps its most Jewish quality is that it was invented by a Jewish landowner. Uh, called Georg Habaland, um, who was a what we would call a developer. And in this moment when Berlin was vastly expanding its population and its and the city itself was gobbling up more suburban areas, um, he invented neighborhoods. Um, the Rheingau Viertel, as it's called, the Rheingau uh, Quarter, uh, the Wagner Viertel which is a wonderful, very handsome neighborhood. Much, both of these are much smaller than the Bavarian Quarter. Um, but the, the Wagner Fiesel, which has streets named for Tristan and Isolde and so on. Uh, but his magnum opus 
was the Bavarian Quarter, um, where he and his the people he worked with designed uh, quasi-Bavarian style small apartment blocks, uh, very very handsome, uh, and with a, a couple of central beautiful public spaces. Uh, the most beautiful, which is called uh, Victoria Luisa Platz, and is still, uh, for my money, the, the loveliest um, public space uh, in Berlin. Um, so we have, and we have these remarkable, um, uh, picturesque apartment buildings, typically about four stories high, often with mansard roofs or elaborate sort of what you know in in the world of Jewish things you call tchotchkes all over the place uh, by way of design. And the neighborhood is reasonably well preserved. Um, I guess uh, I'm, I may look at all of things in Berlin with you know with stars in my eyes. So I think it's more than half original. Technically, that's probably not quite the case, but you can walk around in beautiful streets and just looking at these amazing and witty and diverse uh, and even sort of cranky and and freaky architecture, um, you know, for a whole afternoon. In addition to so that we have, again, as in the cemetery, we have the kind of pictorial element uh, that fascinates me as an art historian. But of course, we also have the people. And once again, I make this, uh, I, I take this walk through the Bayerisches Viertel to the Bavarian Quarter as a walk among uh, the Jews of Berlin. Uh, and again, many of them uh, really, you know, there are poets and philosophers and psychologists, uh, a, a gold medal uh, Olympic uh, athlete, Lily Henoch. Uh, but there is also Albert Einstein, and we have to uh, we have to remember that uh, he lived uh, the longest single residence of his life until he came to my current hometown of Princeton, New Jersey. The longest residence of his life was, in fact, in Haberlandstrasse, um, the street named for the inventor of the neighborhood uh, in the Bavarian Quarter. So the book takes us through both the kind of biographical uh, Bavarian quarter and the, um, and the art historical or the monumental Bavarian quarter. And I hope readers will really walk these streets because they are uh, simply beautiful. And they remain with this sense that this is what it meant to be a Jew in Berlin in the first 30 years of the 20th century. That is to say, to live among artists and poets and intellectuals and physicians and scientists uh, and the rest. I should add also that, although quite briefly, Billy Wilder lived there as a very young man, and there are um, there are plaques uh, for, of course, both Einstein and and Wilder, and as well as many others of these people. But my my treatment of the population of the Bavarian Quarter is uh, is uh, equal opportunity. I talk about uh, Gottfried Ben, the wonderful uh, and terrifying twentieth uh, century poet who was not a Jew. Um, uh, it's really as much about this neighborhood and the kind of people who live there, many of whom were Jewish, uh, as it is uh, about uh, some kind of ghettoized mm. Jewish person. Okay, so in, in the next section of your book, you, you move on to look at uh, people, and you start with um, Rachel Van Hagen, um, who was a writer and a famous um, salon hostess. Tell, tell us a bit about her. Well, I fell in love with her, um, uh, and I am astonished. Uh, I remain astonished that 
she hasn't been more thoroughly discovered, e even really in Germany, uh, in a time when people are so interested in, in the history of women and women's writing, uh, she would seem to be ripe for big discovery that hasn't happened. Although Hannah Arendt wrote a, a biography of her uh, very early in her, in her life. Um, uh, it's a strange uh, biography, and I learned a lot from it, but also learned to keep my distance from it. Uh, Varnhagen was an in, uh, so born in the 1770s, died in the 1830s. Um, was a Jewish woman, Berliner, um, um, not particular, not from an extraordinarily wealthy family, uh, not a great beauty, um, and she she uh, began to collect around her all the kind of bold-faced names of culture. Everything from the royal, certain members of the royal family, uh, to poets, scientists, generals, uh, and a, and a lot of very famous people uh, like Goethe and Beethoven. Uh, and she knew everyone. They didn't all come climb up the stairs to her salon, but a great many did. Uh, Kleist uh, became her friend late in his life, and in fact, uh, she. It's a letter of hers in which we. He first hear of his suicide. Grillparza, um, uh, uh, a, a, a kind of wacky American religious nut uh, from upstate New York. Um, uh, uh, generals whom she adored. And there was a kind of milieu around her of uh, liveliness, of debate, of uh, romance, poetry, uh, arguments about about uh, Rossini and and musical life, a lot of theater people. Um, and we have a few documents. Rachel herself wrote thousands and thousands of letters, which are collected. Um, I think that it's, it's tally is something like 6,000 letters. So there is this vast body of her own writing, but it's all letters. And I think that is a way of reminding ourselves that her genius was as a friend as a an acquaintance, and that the ideal of, around this whole world of Rachel was what's called in German uh, Geselligkeit, uh, companionability. Hmm. Uh, and these, uh, there are a small number of documents uh, of people who have been to the Salon and talk about it, or who are remembering many times in the Salon. And these are, again, um, barely available, only in 19th, in 19th century collection, uh, of documents uh, uh, collected by her husband. She married late in life to a younger man uh, who then, uh, as a lot of the friends are sardonically noted, sort of made a career of being uh, her husband. Uh, Karl August von Ense is his name, Varnhagen, and that's where she has the name Varnhagen. Her own name was variously uh, Levine Robert, and so she has a lot of names, um, and that's why I just call her Rachel. Um, uh, and uh, these documents, essentially, I entered the world of Rachel by closely reading these remarkable documents about what it was like to spend an evening with Rachel. And I hope I convey a little bit of that uh, glittering world. And as I say, the amazing thing, the thing that, uh, again, forms part of the sort of ideology of the book about the the rootedness of uh, Jews and Jewish culture in Berlin is the fact that all of these people, uh, uh, very famous, uh, very not Jewish, <laughs> um, that they 
uh, you know, dozens and dozens of them, you know, climbed many flights of stairs on Wednesday evenings to sip tea in a Jewess's house. Uh, and we're talking about 1795, uh, 1810. Uh, and that although everyone always knew that she was a Jew, they didn't, that didn't affect them very much. And as I point out, in this uh, 150 pages or so of documents that I worked through, uh, with every possible nuance about Rachel um, uh, elucidated because she was an utter phenomenon, never once does anyone mention that she's a Jew. Um, and she certainly was because she writes about it, uh, in, not in an enthusiastic, enthusiastic manner uh, most of the time. Um, so there's a kind of agreed upon sense that this was a, what can we say, a kind of special, uh, a special zone of culture uh, and companionability uh, where issues about Semitism and anti-Semitism somehow didn't apply. So that's my Rochelle. And I think, uh, well, I mean, two of the three people I write about are not especially well-known uh, and they are both, uh, this, the third one is quite well known, but, uh, and they are in their own right worth rediscovering, certainly for an English speaking audience and in some ways, even for a German speaking audience. Hmm. That's great. So yeah, moving on to your second profile of, um, is someone that I hadn't heard of before is, uh, James Simon, um, who was, a an arts patron. Um, tell, tell us about him. James Simon. And one has to begin by saying, uh, it's not clear why he has an English uh, mm. given name. <laughs> uh, that really is his name. Mm. Uh, and I don't, uh, nobody seems to have a, 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 a very clear understanding. It's possible um, there certainly were family connections because they were in the, uh, in the uh, cotton trade. There were family connections to England uh, and to parts of the British colonies. That may explain it, but I don't. I don't know the reason. In fact, his name was James Henri Simon, uh, or Simon, as you'd say in German. Um, so the name itself is sort of uh, often. I have to begin by explaining. Um, James Simon was a very wealthy uh, cotton baron, and coming from a family in the classic vein that, within three generations or so, had moved from essentially shtetl uh, Jewish life uh, to very prominent Berlin uh, commercial aristocracy. He, see, he certainly wasn't the richest man in Berlin or even the richest Jew in Berlin, but he was very wealthy. Um, and he uh, was a brilliant businessman in keeping the family business uh, very lucrative up to a certain point. And, and uh, at the, at the tail end of this story, uh, both the First World War and the German inflation of the early 20s uh, really did the business in. But but the story, and James Simon is born in uh, the 1850s, as I recall. Um, so the bulk of his life uh, is, and he, he died in 1932, uh, which, as I always say with a sardonic smile, is a good year for a Jew in Berlin to die. Um, uh and so most of his life, he was a wealthy and successful man. Uh, and his, he was an enormously generous philanthropist of all kinds, uh, to Jewish causes, to non-Jewish causes. Um, and in particular, and I make much of this because it has some kind of 
fugitive relation to my own um, heritage. Um, he uh, he funded the transit across Germany of Jews from the East who were uh, emigrating to North America. Uh, and my mother and grandmother, my mother is a small child, and my grandmother uh, did go through Germany uh, around 1907, uh, to through Berlin, in fact. Uh, I don't know if James Simon paid for them, but I'd love to think that he did. Mm. Uh, but besides all this, he was a passionate art collector. Uh, and uh, almost from the start, not almost, from the start, he was not only a passionate art collector, but someone who was clearly interested in donating art uh, to what were just beginning to be the museums of Berlin. Uh, and from there, so uh, his own collection sort of began with rather pretty things like Dutch still lifes and went on to major figures like Mantegna, Bronzino, uh, uh, and uh, also uh, in particular, less famous names, but magnificent work. He, he loved uh, painted uh, wooden uh, sculpture, uh, typically from uh, France, Low Countries, Germany. Uh, late medieval, early Renaissance materials. The other thing, well, the other thing is that from quite early on, he started to be an extremely generous uh, backer of uh, archaeological expeditions in the Near East. Um, this is a moment when uh, England and France are vying, in, as they are in other ways, but especially in cultural ways, they are vying with each other. Uh, to uh, rediscover and dig up the uh, glorious uh, uh, architecture uh, and other kinds of remains uh, everywhere from uh, the Holy Land uh, through especially Egypt. And Germany was very behind in this. And Simon, we're speaking English, we'll call him Simon. Um, Simon uh, was the bankroller uh, of uh, an enormous range of major excavations, the most famous of which uh, were in Tel El Amarna, uh, in the Valley of the Kings uh, in Egypt. Uh, and uh, it's there that um, he, uh, through his help and his not merely financial help, but constant uh, direct involvement, um, that the really, the among many other famous objects, the great Nefertiti head was found mm. and from the start he was working very closely with the archaeologists and the managers of archaeological expeditions he never went there himself which is interesting uh, and it's clear that this has something to do uh, it's not an entire coincidence uh, that a jew would be interested in uh, the territory between egypt and palestine uh, but it's certainly not a a kind of uh, specifically Jewish activity at all, as witnessed the fact that certainly many of his uh, collaborators in this were, uh, well, mostly where they weren't, they weren't Jewish, but some of them were even uh, trying to sort of displace the Hebrews uh, as the great sources of civilization in that uh, or originary place of civilization. And, and Simon had very delicate and complicated relations with some of these people, but he bankrolled it and he cared about it, and uh, he cared about beautiful things. In fact, uh, when the Nefertiti head uh, was unearthed, it became, unlike most of the objects, his personal property. But it became his personal property 
which was in um, very, very shortly thereafter um, uh, donated uh, to Berlin, uh, where, of course, it remains now as the centerpiece of the Neues Museum, um, uh, so beautifully uh, designed by uh, David Chipperfield. Um, so uh, C- Simon, but he is a fascinating person, and I try to bring that out. Um, he was famously called by Chaim Weizmann um, uh, a Kaiser Jude, uh, which was a, sn- a sneer on uh, being too friendly with the Kaiser, uh, that, that Weizmann associated with too much allegiance to Germany and not enough allegiance to the Zionist project. In fact, Simon uh, spent a great deal of money on uh, Palestine uh, uh, undertakings, not only money, but managerial skills. Uh, but it was clear that he was interested in Jews uh, inside and outside the Zionist project, and just as interested in uh, getting them out of uh, ghettos and uh, poverty in Eastern Europe as he was in uh, building a, a new, Jewish settle- new Jewish settlements in, in Palestine. So uh, it's his... A complicated presence as a rich man, an esthete, uh, a Kaiser Jude, uh, and living in a time of great ferment, not just in Germany as far as the Jews are concerned, but uh, in a time of the very complicated uh, life of Zionism itself and alternatives to Zionism. And he sort of, in his wonderful way, touches all these stories. So that's what fascinates me about him. And I, uh, uh, I adored him. I mean, he was a man of tremendous humility and tremendous uh, activity uh, on behalf of causes that ma- mean a lot to me, like Jewish culture on the one hand and art on the other hand. Or, of course, they're sometimes the same hand. Mm. That's great. So uh, your last chapter uh, is a discussion of Walter Benjamin. Um, how does he figure in your portrait of Jewish Berlin? Um, and yeah, why did you choose to, to end with him? The choice of these three people was a complicated one uh, itself. Uh, mostly I was looking for a, what we always talk about these days, diversity uh, in time, in gender, and in profession. Mm. Uh, and uh, I also wanted... Um, I knew that uh, uh, at least one of them should be somebody people had heard of. Yeah. Because the, the, the fame of Walter Benjamin is extremely uh, localized. That is to say, on any university campus, certainly mine, um, <laughs> he is a household word. Uh, when I mention him, uh, you know, uh, to, uh, you know, my partner's relatives, they say, who? Uh, <laughs> So uh, famous is not, uh, he's famous uh, uh, up and down. Uh, but I wanted somebody that at least some of my friends would have heard of. Um, and, uh, and of course, I wanted, uh, I mean, it, uh, it seemed right in all this sort of happy talk uh, about Jews in Germany uh, that not to have anybody who suffered from uh, Nazism would be uh, uh, really a questionable choice. Mm. So Benjamin, and and. I mean, that, those are sort of part of the credentials for Benjamin in the book. But, of course, he's a, not no surprise, he's a rivetingly fascinating figure. And nothing about him is more fascinating than his relation to being a Jew, uh, but also his relation to Berlin. And that's the other reason. The reason that 
absolutely I could I would never have written this book without Benjamin is is because of a book he wrote that doesn't get much attention because it's not uh, abstruse uh, cultural criticism unless you look very deeply at it which is the a little book of his called the Berlin Childhood in 1900 and it is a, a memoir in vignettes of his childhood he grew up he's absolutely a Berliner uh, a relatively wealthy family, nothing like James Simon, but wealthy-ish. Uh, <laughs> and <clears throat> more particularly, and this is this is true of all my three Jews, uh, uh, very unassimilated. I mean, very assimilated, sorry. Um, and there are uh, lengthy accounts in this little book of the Christmas uh, celebrations in their house, uh, of Easter, uh, <clears throat> of all these matters. In fact, as I point out, there's scarcely a mention of the word Jew in the whole book, although the one mention is a very telling one, and I, I end with that. And it's a, a story about his being sent to go to Rosh Hashanah services and, not, uh, and losing his way and not getting there and walking the streets, getting the, his first idea. He's probably about 13 at this point uh, of, you know, noticing that there are uh, women uh, selling themselves on the street. So, he goes from uh, not being at Rosh Hashanah at service uh, to uh, much, uh, even more secular activities. Uh, he doesn't seem to have actually patronized one of these women at age 13, but he certainly talks about it. Um, so uh, Benjamin has this. He had already, as it were, written my chapter for me because it is a purpose of these, um, uh, all five of these chapters, to be not only historical, but also um, uh, itineraries in some sense uh, mm -hmm. for Berlin. So Benjamin has already done that work for me and I, I weave together his, his life, what it means to him to be a Jew with uh, a sense of the places that he marks by his childhood experiences there. And so we can do a sort of, uh, you know, walking in Benjamin's footsteps uh, through the Berlin of 1900 um, as well as uh, floating in and out of what it meant to him uh, to think about uh, culture, urban culture. After all, he's the great uh, flaneur, um, the great uh, chronicler of, of Paris urban culture and walking. But before he ever walked in Paris, he walked in his hometown of Berlin. So we see that uh, and we also see the complicated way that in which he was a Jew. That's great. Um, well, thank you very much, Leonard, uh, for talking to us about uh, your book, um, Berlin for Jews. It's um, a really interesting book, and I will definitely be taking it with me next time I go to Berlin. <laughs> well, I hope to see you there. <laughs> um, but just before I let you go, would you have to tell us a bit about uh, what you're working on next? Certainly. May I, before I say that, uh, just uh, refer to a very important thread in the book, hmm. uh, that doesn't get contained in, in talking about the five chapters. And that thread is me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is also a memoir and what it means to me to be a Jew. And the book begins on purpose, shockingly, uh, with a story about how for a certain number of years in my youth, I pretended I wasn't a Jew. And so we learn a lot about Leonard Barkin in the book, uh, Again, for some readers, that's the best part. Perhaps for more <laughs> readers, that's the worst part. Um, I mean, the reader for whom it's the best part is obviously me. Um, uh, so it is a, uh, 
a somewhat more personal book than merely reviewing the five chapters uh, would would convey. And at the beginning and at the end, it's really uh, we know who the author is. But I'm very happy to talk about my what I'm working on now. Um, quite a way uh, in in real life. Uh, although I've written this is Berlin produces the second time I've written a personal book about a city. The other is a book called Seder Square: A Year of Life in Rome. Um, but in real life, I work on Renaissance culture, both literary culture and visual culture. And I've written, I guess, six books on that subject. Um, at the moment, having passed from uh, from the mediated world of literature to the less mediated world of, of the visual arts, I'm writing a book about food uh, and drink, about eating and drinking as and what their place is in the culture, especially of ancient Rome and of uh, the European Renaissance and how it is that inside the world of the loftier arts, poetry, painting, music, uh, statecraft, theology, and so on, all these grand activities, when we look a little more closely, uh, we see the great importance uh, of actually what people ate and drank, when they did it, with whom, and under what circumstances. So the book is called Reading for the Food. Because I take a lot of texts and pictures and say, what happens, uh, what happens when we read Plato's Symposium and actually notice that it's, uh, it's a drinking party? Or what happens when we look at, the, at paintings of the Last Supper and say, what's for dinner at the Last Supper? Um, and so it's, it's a kind of, I'm looking at, cu- at culture uh, that uh, ostensibly isn't about food and saying, well, somebody's eating and somebody's drinking and somebody's making food. Uh, What's that about? That's the project. That sounds great. Um, well, thanks very much again for joining us, Leonard. Uh, you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies with your host, Max Kaiser. Um, and with us today, we had Leonard Barkin, and he talked to us about his new book, Berlin for Jews, a 21st Century Companion, published in 2016 by the University of Chicago Press. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.